In the Lord's sovereignty on this Christ the King Sunday, we come to Isaiah chapter 57 as we continue our series through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 57, remember in the last several verses, excuse me, the last several chapters, Isaiah's theme has been the good news that our God reigns. Our God reigns through the servant who does not look at all like we would expect and does not act at all like we would expect. And he, in fact, administers the reign of God in a way that we do not expect. And it manifests among people that we don't expect. And it manifests in ways that we don't expect. All of those make it somewhat um, risky to recognize and bow and to the reign of God through his servant that we have come to know as Jesus. Read with me Isaiah chapter 57, the first 13 verses. The word of the Lord. The righteous man perishes And no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off, sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way. But you did not say, it is hopeless. Rather, you found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied? And did not remember me, and did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. 
the wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. This is the word of the living God to us, his people, even in this place at this time, even on this day, Christ the King Sunday, that we may indeed uh, be fed upon that good word. So let us go to him in prayer. So, Father, we come to this time and this hour that you have set aside to this, your word. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would grant us courage to hear, to receive, to respond to this, your word. Feast us upon the light of your word, the wisdom of your word, the truth of your word. Protect us from foolishness and darkness and error. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. I must confess that as I got, as we were approaching this chapter, um, realizing it was Christ the King Sunday and also becoming painfully aware of the way that God's word is percolating in us and among us as his people, that I was keenly tempted to set it aside for a while and go to some other passage of scripture. But it is part of our tradition and part of our conviction and part of my personal conviction that we move through scripture taking the next passage that comes in its time, trusting that the Lord himself, because of his great love for us, has timed it perfectly. And so we plunge into chapter 57. The theme, just to be clear, goes something like this. When the righteous begin disappearing from the land, we need to take note because it is a sign of God's mercy on the one hand as well as God's justice on the other hand. In terms of his justice, he is finally justly granting the desires and the dreams of the ungodly And so in his mercy, saying to his righteous ones, it's time to leave. Proverbs tells us that when it goes well among the righteous, the city rejoices. However, when those who have been entrusted with the gifts of God's righteousness squander them for their own ends, the city grieves and the city groans. This week, my boys desperately wanted to go to see Justice League. And I thought, first of all, I don't think movies are worth the 150 bucks you have to pay to go to them anymore. 
And then when you get a cut deal on it so that you're only paying 50 bucks a ticket, you still have to pay 75 bucks to get a small popcorn. So I objected on that level. But alas, I was convinced and it went. Fun movie. Wait for it on DVD. (laughs) Or Netflix, it'll be free. But the opening scene is really pertinent. The opening scene is really dark. The opening scene reveals a a dark city, a violent city, a city in which there is no truth, in which there is no justice, in which there is no mercy. It is characterized by violence. The winner is the most powerful. It is a world stripped of grace. And the key indicator of how bad things have gotten are the headlines on the discarded newspapers that let you know that all the heroes are gone. There's no one they can call. No one that will save them. It's so bad that even the heroes are gone. That's the situation that's before us here in Isaiah chapter 57. Things have gotten so bad that the heroes are gone. The Bible language for that is the righteous ones are gone. Israel, we are seeing depicted here in painful detail, Israel is playing her part as the harlot, as the prostitute, as Hosea's wife who is so committed to the pursuit of her lovers that she goes out again and again and again and again, disdaining Hosea's love for her. Verse 4, you have this scene of mockery and oppression. Who are you mocking? Against whom are you opening your mouth wide and sticking out your tongue Are you not children of transgression and offspring of deceit? One commentator says, in order to get the the picture of the language that Isaiah is using here, imagine, if you will, a mob lynching. Let's say in the earlier part of the 20th century in Mississippi. Think of that. Think of everything that goes along with that. Think of the disgust even now you feel about that. Think of of how twisted it is that the people who are perpetrating such a lynching do so in their own mind in the name of justice, in the name of right, in the name of God even. How twisted must that be? And once you start to internalize that and lay hold of that image, that's the image here in verse 4. Isaiah is coming and saying, what are you doing? Look at yourself. Do you recognize what's happening here? 
This is how bad things have gotten. Verse 5, you burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. The, the, most people believe that what the, the image there is that the idolatrous or Canaanite religions, the, some of the holy places were under the green trees. And that Israel very happily went up and joined them there in these lustful, sordid worship experiments. Lusting, burning with lust and sacrificing of children. And so we think to ourselves, shoo, glad we don't do that. And yet we find the same thing. Isn't that exactly what consumerism is and materialism? Even as Scott was talking about, we give thanks on Thursday and then we go out to accumulate more on Friday. But consumerism is less of an activity and more a bent of heart. It is a lust for things. It's a lust for people as things. Most of us are aware that in the recent news there has been this hashtag MeToo campaign. And it's been a sobering experience for a lot of people just to see the number of people who are saying hashtag me too. Why? Because brothers and sisters, we live in a society that has trained us to look at things and look at people as things. To, to accumulate people and things for our own ends. That's lust. Verse 5, we slaughter your children in the valleys, and we think, well, surely we don't do that. And yet, isn't it true that in our culture, it is hard work to not have our children sacrificed on the idols of consumerism? We do. We sacrifice our families and our children to the lies of our consumeristic culture. We, at a very deep level, function as though the lie of culture is true, that he who accumulates and consumes the most wins. Whether it's the most toys or the most time or the most notches in your belt, the most degrees, the most money, the most conquests, and we brag about it. I got such a great bargain! Look what I want. Look what I got. Verse 6. The smooth stones of your valley is your portion. They are your lot. Speaking of the, of the way that stones were set up as memorials to the gods. You've chosen your lot, Isaiah is saying. You have faithfully and you have sincerely, you have committedly thrown your lot in with the gods of the Canaanites and the surrounding nations. Verse 10 goes on. Back up to verse 9. You journeyed to the king with oil. Multiplied your perfumes. You've sent your envoys far off. You sent down even to Sheol. You have run far. You have given more. You have invested more time. So that now, verse 10, 
you are wearied with the length of your way. But in your weariness, did, did it ever occur to you that maybe this line of pursuit, maybe this idol, maybe, maybe this king is not a source of hope for me? No. But we double down. We go further. We exhaust ourselves believing that the problem was that, you hadn't, that we hadn't accumulated enough. I know I'm on the right track. I just need one more thing. That we hadn't practiced it long enough. I'm going to get this down. We hadn't gone far enough. Having drunk so deeply of the lie by which we are convinced of the potential payout, like an an addiction to a Las Vegas slot machine, it simply never occurs to us that it's the idols themselves the wisdom itself, the kings themselves that are in fact sucking us dry and leaving us feeling exhausted. So there's the situation. It's pretty bleak. What's the cause of it? Well, the cause of it is rooted back in chapter 56. Remember this verse Uh, Chapter 56, verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are silent dogs. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will, will be like this great, be, like this day, great beyond measure. The consumeristic worldview has consumed the religious leaders. This sort of consumeristic lip service for self-service of the religious leaders, according to which they saw religious practices as a way to leverage from God their own happiness and security. The religious leaders themselves have bought into the lies. And they've, they've taken the lies of the surrounding culture and they've baptized it with the language of Yahweh. Their lip service for self-service, as the New Testament might describe it, gives the appearance of faithfulness and godliness, but lacks the substance of it. This stands in stark contrast, remember, to the eunuchs and the foreigners that we talked about last week. Remember the eunuchs and the foreigners, they all lack the appearance of faithfulness and godliness, and yet demonstrate the substance And here at the end of chapter 56, we have those who have the appearance of faithfulness and godliness, but lack the substance of it. And it's that rot that we see playing out in chapter 57. But the point is not that it's a religious leader problem. 
the point is that it is a problem of the heart. It is a faith problem. It is a religion problem, if you will. So think about it this way. Here in the South, most if, you, if any of you are from the North, you have had this frustration. In the South, we say, do you want a Coke? And you say, sure. And then the, the Southerner will follow that up saying, what kind? The Northerner says, I just told you. But in the South, you have to understand, Coke means carbonated beverage. Because we have taken the best of all possible carbonated beverages and we have put that label, sorry, David. <laughs> sorry, Doc. The best of all possible carbonated beverages and we say Coke. And so Coke becomes the name for the whole class, and very similar, there's a similar dynamic here. The religious leaders come to represent the beating heart of, of, the, of the nation. The religious values, the faith values of the nation, they are the most visible embodiment of those values, if you will. At least that's how it works here. This true in other portions of Scripture, most um, Perhaps obviously in Ezekiel, the religious leaders themselves are called out for a slightly different reason. But here, the point is that the religious leader is the most visible manifestation of this, of this faith rot or this faith cancer at the heart of the nation. Russell Moore Speaking on the topic, oh, he calls a, a topic entitled Slow Motion Sexual, Sexual Revolutionaries, argues that the church in North America lost its argument with the culture about human sexuality long ago when it capitulated to the culture's romanticized vision of marriage's purposes, namely, marriage is for my personal peace and happiness. The point that he is making is that it's not a new crisis that we find ourselves in as a church in North America trying to deal with what we might call the, the new um, sexual uh, issues going on. The fact is that we lost that battle back in the 50s, if not before. Because, like Israel, without our knowing it, we allowed the surrounding nation to define what God alone defines. But it's not just that. Having deeply imbibed the values of consumeristic, materialistic, expressive individualism, we even conceive of the local church itself as merely a purveyor of spiritual goods and services. You see, the gospel and gospel gatherings, we see, we've come to see the gospel and gospel gatherings as a product that we buy in order to make us feel happy. So that if it ever makes us feel sad, it is no longer something I want to consume or participate in. Here, too, the cancer of the surrounding culture manifests among the people 
of God. And so it is. A cancer to which we, we find ourselves in our culture, and perhaps I find myself, perhaps you find yourself deeply committed. And so, on top of all of that, the final terminal signs of a society gone bad is the diminishing and disappearing presence of God's righteous ones. Look at that, verses 1 and 2 of 57. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands. We're scratching our head. What in the world is happening? They're such a good person. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. You see what he's describing there. So committed is the spiritual body of Israel to the cancer that is destroying them that they are no longer sensible to the final symptoms of their condition. The disappearance of the righteous, the disappearance of society's white blood cells, if you will, with which the Lord has blessed society in order to cultivate true worship and restrain the evils of false worship, So committed are the Israelites and their religious leaders to leveraging God for their own personal peace, comfort, security, and affluence that they're simply inattentive to and unaware of the coming judgment. So think about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The servants of the Lord, the angels of the Lord descended and they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? One, to clarify that in fact the evil was as pervasive as the complaints had made it sound. And then two, to destroy them. Why were they not destroyed beforehand? Well, the intercession of Abraham reveals why. Because that there was one righteous family still there. And we might debate what we mean by righteous in the case of Lot and his family, but it's in, the indicators are clear that it is by association with the man of promise, Abraham himself. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had no idea what was coming. They had no understanding of the significance that Lot and his family were being taken away. But it was the last stop. It was, the, it was the removal of the last break of God's mercy. In fact, as we know from ministries of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Amos and Hosea and other of the prophets, not only were Israel insensible and unaware, but they were insensible and unaware because they were presumptuous. Because their logic went something like this. Since God is love and since we are the objects of that great love, he would never ever say or do anything that would make us sad. Which is why it's so stunning and shocking that Isaiah says, look at the eunuch and look at the foreigner. 
They are the objects of God's love, and we know this because they imitate the character of God's love. And so while they may be noting that we have a crisis of leadership, a crisis of vision and imagination, a crisis of wisdom and courageous leadership, an absence of genuine heroes, a dearth of righteous men and women that we can call on to look or look to, they do not have a worldview robust enough to connect those observations as the last manifestation of God's mercy. So what does it look like so that we might recognize it? What does it look like when God, in his mercy, begins to remove his righteous from a society so that when we see it, we might rightly respond to it? What does it look like when God removes his righteous righteous ones from a society that has so deeply committed itself to the pursuit of its own dreams and desires on its own terms? Well, they perish, verse 1. And they are taken away, second part of verse 1. They perish. Illness, accident, natural disaster, man-made disaster, you name it, they perish. It's not judgment on them. It's granting them their reward. Since we do, after all, believe this is not all there is, right? But they're taken away. Think Enoch, who was no more because of his righteousness. Or perhaps they are moved away. They are moved to a different place on the board, such as the case with Lot. That's what it looks like. We can explain it away, as the Israelite leaders most certainly did. But Isaiah is telling us that when this is happening... The Lord, this is what it looks like when the Lord is slowly removing the breaks of his mercy. This is Isaiah's version of what we read in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. Where where periodically in that process, the Lord is saying he gave them up to the desires of their heart. If this is what you want, you can have this. That wasn't wasn't a a, a, uh, generosity gift. That was a gift of wisdom and judgment. Israel, its religious and political leaders, had made their decision. They had made their commitment. Like Hosea's wife, they had decided to commit themselves to the lies of the world. That is, that true acceptance, true belonging, true security, and true strength, and true happiness consists in military and economic power and influence, in the accumulation of possessions and positions, in business and political accomplishments, and connections. Well, that puts us in a bind, it seems. If that's what's going on, then what hope? Look at the very end of chapter 13, verse 13, excuse me, verse 13. And again, remember the good news is our God reigns. He who takes refuge in me, in the God who reigns, the one who reigns by his servant, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land 
and shall inherit my holy mountain. Years ago, I saw this uh, poster, this, um, this bumper sticker. Relative to this passage, this bumper sticker said, The meek don't want it! Took you a second. Jesus tells us that the meek shall inherit the earth, and his bumper sticker declares the meek don't want it because the person who was driving the car was looking around and realizing this place is going to be a, a charcoal. That we're destroying this place, and so we don't even want it. But keep in mind, so this Isaiah is writing pre-exile. And he's saying, hey, I got good news for you. You're going to possess the land. Well, thanks, but there will be no land left. But do you remember what the Lord commanded Jeremiah? In the months immediately before the fall and destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord told Jeremiah to go and purchase land and then be sure that you preserve the title. Why? Because the purposes of the Lord extend beyond the limits of human vision. Because the Lord's promise is something you can take to the bank. Yes, Jerusalem will be destroyed, yet I will be faithful, and yet I will make all things new, and that, Jeremiah, will be your land. That's what we have to keep in mind when we read, He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land. As we see the, our lives perhaps falling apart, as we see our community in, in tatters, as we see a nation in tatters, we need to remember that our God reigns, and yet we shall possess the land when all things are made new. Our refuge and our rest and our security is in that, that our God reigns. Some are saying that the church in the United States is disappearing, and some debate this. While churches in Jesus Christ among white, suburban, middle class do seem to be shrinking and closing at an alarming rate, churches among the so-called marginalized or so-called minority communities are actually seeming to grow. And it is important that nowadays, especially I, put marginalized and minority in quotes, and if you want to follow up on that statement, I'm happy to talk with you about that. But if the church of Jesus Christ is shrinking in the United States, that is to say, if the footprint of Christ's kingdom reign does seem to be shrinking, whether in our culture or in our families or in our own hearts, we could do a lot worse than asking why. Might its disappearance be, in fact, a sign of God exercising his just and merciful reign in our world and in our lives? In order that to get our attention? What if, like Rahab, we saw the signs? 
What if like Rahab, remember the story, Rahab was, was living in Jericho and the people had been hearing the stories of God's mighty works among his people. They'd received the reports, they were afraid. The gossip was that their days were numbered, that there was no hope. But Rahab, bucking the conventional wisdom of her neighbors in the city around her, Rahab believed in the character of the God whose mighty works she was hearing about. She had the same data, but she was drawing a different conclusion. She knew that if what she saw and understood was right, then the safest place to be in the coming destruction was to take refuge in the one who was conquering. Because he's the victorious king. What if, like Rahab, we saw those signs? And whether in our own lives, in our own families, in our own culture, we fled for refuge to Christ our King. The diminishing, we can think about the diminishing presence and influence of the righteous in Flintstone. We can think about the diminishing, perhaps even destructive returns of our own adulterous and idolatrous pursuits. And what if we saw all of these things as a sign that our hope and our refuge is in the one who reigns, the risen one, the reigning one, Christ the King. For Christ alone in whom all the riches of wisdom and understanding and strength and courage are found He is our hero. He has gone before us. He has won for us the victory. He has defeated our idols and our enemies and secured for us a place at the king's table. This is why our idols fail, because he has won the victory. And he has secured for us a place at the king's table in the presence of God himself. Should we find our refuge in him as evidenced in lives of justice, righteousness, Sabbath-keeping, and restraint from evil? While we may find ourselves removed a bit from the land for a time, yet we will possess the land in the end, the land that he restores under the reign that he has established. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is not to go with oil and to multiply our perfumes and to run even farther down the roads, but to flee to Christ the King for our refuge, for it is there that we will find ourselves possessing the land. Jesus, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear.